Well, good morning, everyone. <clears throat> I was just thinking as I was worshiping, aren't you guys grateful for our various worship teams who are up here Sunday after Sunday? Isn't that fantastic? You do such a good job. Well, it's an honor for you, me to share with you this morning. Uh, let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, in Hebrews, <clears throat> it says that your word is living and active, that it's sharper than a two-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit. It judges our thoughts and the intentions of our heart. Lord, I pray that your word would go forth this morning and it would accomplish everything that you intend. Your word has power to change us. Let that happen, Lord. We submit ourselves to you and pray that you would have your way in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. As most of you know, we are, <clears throat> uh, we've started a series in 1 Samuel called After God's Heart. The title of this particular message is called The Ark of God's Presence. The first week, we looked at the state of Israel during the time of the judges. It was a very uh, chaotic time. There wasn't any central leadership. Everybody was doing their own thing. Um, so it was, it was a difficult time in Israel. Different things were happening in different places, but it was a very chaotic time. But hope was on the horizon. Last week, we looked at the house of Eli, the priest. He had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who also served as priests. But they were wicked men who had no regard for the things of God. In the midst of this corruption, God raised up a young man named Samuel, who loved the presence of God. We believe that God is raising up a Samuel generation today. This week, we're going to be looking at the significance of the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the very presence of God. I'd like to show you a picture of what the Ark of the Covenant may have looked like. It's kind of hard to see, uh, but that's very similar to a lot of renditions. The Ark of the Covenant was a chest that was constructed by the Israelites while they were in the Sinai Desert after they were delivered from Egypt. This is all about 500 years before the time of Eli and Samuel. God gave very specific instructions about how to build this ark. And the book of Hebrews tells us that contained within the ark was the rod of Aaron that budded, a bowl of manna, and the stone tablets of the covenant. The ark was placed in a portable shrine known as the tabernacle, and in some mysterious way, it contained the very presence and glory of God. The historical events of today's message come from three chapters in Samuel, uh, chap chapters 4 through 6. So if you have a chance to read that, um, <clears throat> you're welcome to. I want to give you a brief overview of the contents of those chapters, and then we're going to go in a few minutes and look at it in more detail and see what God might be saying to us today. During the time of Eli and Samuel, the Philistines were the main enemies of Israel. In 1 Samuel 4, we learn that in one of their battles against the Philistines, Israel was defeated and 4,000 men were killed on the battlefield. So in response to this defeat... The leaders of Israel decided to bring the Ark of the Covenant from Shiloh, where the Ark was kept, and it was accompanied by Hophni and Phinehas to the camp. 
And the Scripture says that when they brought the ark into the camp, there was such a loud roar from the people of God that it actually shook the earth. They were confident that bringing the ark to camp would guarantee them victory with the Philistines. They probably remembered some of the past victories when the ark was present, and they just assumed that this was going to work again. Well, as it turned out, Israel suffered a horrible defeat. 30,000 soldiers were killed. Hophni and Phinehas died, and the Ark of the Covenant was captured. When Eli heard what happened, in shock, he fell off his chair, broke his neck, and died. At this exact same time, Eli's daughter-in-law, Phinehas' wife, died in child labor, and just before she died, she named her son Ichabod, which literally means no glory. Her last recorded words were this from 1 Samuel 4, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Not a very good day for Israel, and a good reason why none of us have named our sons Ichabod. After the Philistines captured the ark, they carried it off to Dagon's temple, and they set it right up next to the statue of Dagon. Now, Dagon was their principal god. He was the god of uh, crop fertility. It was a little unsettling when they came in the next day, and they found the statue of Dagon face down on the floor. That exact same thing happened the next day as well. But that was just the beginning of the Philistines' experience with the ark. The Bible says that the Lord's hand was very heavy upon the Philistines. He brought devastation upon them with tumors. Rats appeared in the land, and death and disease were everywhere. Now, they moved the ark from city to city, but wherever that ark went, there was a wake of devastation. The Bible says that there was a great outcry from the Philistines, from the people. This epidemic went on for seven months seven months before they finally decided to send the ark back to Israel. And in spite of the humiliation that this involved, in desperation, they sent the ark back with a guilt offering, hoping that this offering would release them from the devastation that they were experiencing. The guilt offering was five golden tumors, five golden rats, according to the same number of Philistine cities and rulers that were affected by these plagues. The Scripture says that the Philistines recalled lessons from history when Egypt was, afflict, was afflicted with plagues as well because they failed to let God's people go. They said, why should we make the same mistake? And so they sent the ark back on a cart pulled by two cows. Now, there's kind of a story within a story here because as they sent the ark back into Israel, they set up a fleece. These cows that they selected had just given birth to a couple of calves. And <clears throat> what's natural is for the mothers to be with those calves and to feed them. And so they said, you know what? When we release these cows, if they go back to where their calves are, because they took them away right at birth, then, which is natural for those cows to do, then we'll know that this is just a natural disaster. We've had a lot of bad luck. You know, we'll put bumper stock stickers on our, on our chariots that say, crap happens. I mean, it, you know, it's just a bad day. But 
If these cows do what is unnatural, and instead of going towards their calves, they continue down the road towards Jerusalem, or towards Israel, I should say, then we will know that God has brought this great disaster upon us. And of course, that's exactly what happened. Now, when the cart made its way into Israel territory, the people of Beth Shemesh were the first to see it. <clears throat> Excuse me. They were out harvesting wheat, and as they saw the ark, they rejoiced at the sight of it. The Levites in the community set the holy ob- objects on a big rock, and they, they <clears throat> offered some burnt offerings and some sacrifices to the Lord. <clears throat> Excuse me just a minute. <clears throat> so they were full of joy. They were worshiping God. But their joy was short-lived because some of the men from Beth Shemesh foolishly looked into the ark, and 70 men were struck down. The men of Beth Shemesh asked a very important question in 1 Samuel 6. They said, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? Following this tragedy, they sent messengers to a nearby city, and those men came and retrieved the ark. They took it to the house of Abinadab, where that ark remained for 20 years. So, an interesting story, but what does it have to do with us? Well, let's go back and look at these events in a little more detail and see if we can see what God might be saying to us. I see three main lessons. Lesson number one, God desires wholeheartedness. The first lessons come to us from what we learned from Hophni and Phinehas. They were priests of God. They were charged with the duties on behalf of the people. And yet they took advantage of the people when they were trying to worship God and they used their position for selfish gain. There was compromise in the house of Eli, and it led to their demise. When Israel was initially defeated by the Philistines, Israel leaders understood that their defeat was more about God's displeasure than it was about the military might of the Philistines. They said this in 1 Samuel 4, 3, Why did the Lord... Notice they're attributing this to the Lord. Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? Rather than inquiring of God, which they should have done in the first battle, they decided to exercise what I call superstitious faith, which is really not faith at all. In an attempt to win God's favor, they decided to bring the big guns, the Ark of the Covenant, the secret weapon. When all else fails, add a little religion. That should do the trick. For the sake of his reputation, God will be compelled to give us the victory. Well, as they discovered, they were horribly mistaken. Here's an important lesson. God will not be used. He'll not be coerced. He'll not be manipulated for man's purposes. He doesn't exist to bless our plans. He can't be employed as a genie in a bottle or a good luck charm to make our plans better. He is the Lord, and we exist exist to serve Him and not the other way around. Now, we all know this, but how many times have we done something similar? How many times have we used prayer or fasting to try to, you know, as a means of twisting God's arm to try to get Him to do something we want or to bless our plans? 
How many times have we used God's name to sanction something that we want to do? The God told me statements that are so popular among charismatic circles. How many times have we misquoted or misapplied or twisted Scripture to fit our purposes? How many times have we sought God for what He can do for us rather than for who He is? Do we really value the presence of God? Or do we just value what His presence can do for us? These are all soul-searching questions that we have to ask ourselves frequently. Now, there's another lesson that we learn here, and that is this. And I say this most respectfully. God is intense. He desires wholeheartedness. He hates hypocrisy. He hates duplicity, compromise, half-heartedness, complacency, lukewarmness. Why? Because it's so unlike who God is. All of those things are distortions of who He is. And they're distortions of who God has made us to be as His image bearers. God is wholehearted, and He wants us to be wholehearted like Him. That's why God in Scripture is called a jealous God. He is jealous for our affection and our undivided attention. As a young believer, I used to struggle with how much of the Old Testament was applicable to us. First of all, I I didn't understand a lot of the Old Testament. And the parts that I understood didn't seem applicable. I mean, it seemed like there were so many laws about idol worship. There were endless warnings about idol worship. There were judgments about idol worship. And I used to think, thank God we don't have that problem today. (laughs) I mean, when you look at it, You look at the Ten Commandments, the first two commandments, they're about idols. They say this, thou shall have no other gods before me. Okay, no problem, check. You shall not make any graven images. You shall not make idols. Uh, Okay, no problem, check. I mean, how many of us have these little graven images around our house that we bow down and worship every day, right? Well, this is before I understood what an idol was. An idol is anything that takes the place of God. What are my heart's affections? What gets the devotion of my time and my energy and my resources? What or who do I look to to meet my deep needs and bring fulfillment in my life? Oh boy, now we're in a different ballpark, aren't we? Do we have idols today? Absolutely. They just come in different forms, and they have different names. So what are our idols today? Money, sports, recreation, family, entertainment, hobbies. Sometimes we can even make idols out of sports figures, celebrities. I mean, we've got a a, a television program called American Idol. We don't even try to be subtle about it. And we can make idols out of our spouses, out of our children. We can even make idols out of church work. In this COVID season, we have been stripped of many of the things that we look to and normally go to for entertainment and for comfort, don't we? Many things that we enjoy as entertainment and comfort have been removed or changed. God has been exposing many of our idols. He has been using this season to cleanse and purify His church. 
You know, I've heard so many people say that they can't wait until this season is over so we can get back to life as normal. And I understand what they're saying. But if God is challenging us to lay down our idols, we don't want to pick those up again. Just as the idol of Dagon was down before the Lord, we want to lay our idols down. We want to make sure that the legs and the arms of those idols are broken off and we don't erect those idols again. We want to worship God and let Him do His purifying work in us. Yes, we do want things to get back to the non-COVID times, but we don't want to pick up those idols that we have let go of. God wants our hearts. He wants to be the center of our affections, not because God has some sort of ego problem, He wants wholeheartedness, first of all, because he's worthy of it. And second of all, because that's who we were created for, the best version of ourselves. The thing that makes us truly complete is our wholehearted connection with God. Now, you guys, none of this is meant to bring condemnation. God knows our hearts. He knows our hearts are prone to wander. This is part of the human condition. None of us loves God with all of our hearts, souls, strengths, and minds. But here's what we need to know. Wholeheartedness is not about gifts. It's not about talents. It's not about effort. It's not about productivity. It's about your heart. Do you have God's heart? Does he have your heart? Does God have my heart? And do I have his heart? If not, God's simple answer to our lack of wholeheartedness is repentance. Repentance is a gift that all of us can use as often as we need to. Thank God for the gift of repentance. Okay, so lesson number one, God desires wholeheartedness. Lesson number two, God is sovereign. When the Philistines defeated Israel in battle... It was a very, very sad day. Not only was there tremendous loss of life and all the families that were impacted by that loss of life, not only were their religious leaders killed, but the very symbol of their faith, the Ark of the Covenant, was captured and gone. Eli seemed more upset about the capture of the Ark than it did about the death of his sons. And the shock of that news caused him to fall off his chair and die. It's no wonder that Eli's daughter-in-law, just before her death in childbirth, said the glory of God has departed from Israel. Now, as the ultimate gesture of victory, the Philistines placed the ark in the temple of Dagon, right underneath his imposing statue. Is this to say, in your face, Israel, our God is stronger than your God, our God is greater than your God, your God will lie in submission to Dagon in a position of prostration. You can imagine their horror when they went in the next day to their temple and they saw Dagon flat on his face, flat on his face, flat on his face before the Ark of the Covenant. This is called reverse prostration. Instead of the Ark being prostrate to Dagon, Dagon was now prostrate to the Ark of the Covenant. So they probably said, how did this happen? Quick, pick it up, get him, get him cleaned up and stand up, up again before anybody comes in and sees. Well, guess what? The next morning, the same thing happened. Dagon was flat on his face. I got it right this time. 
And not only that, but his arms and his legs were broken off. And all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Dagon together again. (laughs) God was making a statement about who he was, and this time it was clear to them that this just wasn't a coincidence. Maybe the first time, but this second time it wasn't a coincidence. It reminds me of my experience in 2001, 9-11, when the first plane crashed into the World Trade Center. I thought, oh my gosh, what a horrible accident. It was such a beautiful, clear day that day, too. I thought the only way this could have happened is that if there was some sort of a medical emergency, maybe the, maybe the pilot had a stroke. But when the second plane crashed into the second tower, even before I heard the news, I said, this is no accident. This is intentional. This is not a coincidence. It must have been the same feeling with the Philistines who said, this isn't a coincidence This is intentional. The Philistines had to know that God was making a statement about who was greater and who was strongest. He was making an unequivocal statement about his sovereignty. And as I mentioned before, this was just the beginning of their problems. For seven months, the Philistines were plagued by these cancerous tumors and this infestation of rats that caused disease. They were having their own pandemic of sorts. And, and wherever they moved the ark, whatever city it went to, it caused the same kind of devastation. Now, the Bible doesn't say how many people died in those plagues, but I wouldn't be surprised if the loss of life as a result of those plagues was the same or even greater than the 30,000 men that Israel lost in the battle. God was making a statement about his sovereignty. That's why I like Psalm 2 so much, which I'm going to read to you. Psalm 2, why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Galatians 6, 7 says something similar. It says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. With all the daily bad news we have in our country and with all the chaos happening that's all around the world, we have to remind ourselves that God is on his throne. He has installed his son on Mount Zion as the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. God is in charge. He is in control. He is the sovereign God. And no matter what it looks like out there, no matter what is going on in our lives, God's redemptive purposes will take place in my life, in your life, and in the earth. We know how the story ends. God's plans will not be thwarted. His truth is marching on. We have to remind ourselves that the enemy who is causing all of this chaos is a defeated foe. His days of rebellion are numbered. He exists only to serve God's ultimate purposes. We have to remind ourselves that nothing can separate us from the love of God. We have to remind ourselves that if God is for us, who can be against us? We have to remind ourselves of the comforting words of Jesus who said, I have told you these things so that in me you might have peace. John 16. We can have peace in Christ right now in the middle of this season. 
He said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. God is sovereign. Let's embrace his sovereignty and let that important truth profoundly affect how we live our daily lives. Amen? Lesson number three. God is holy. When the Israelites saw the cows pulling the cart with the ark into Israel... They were ecstatic. They rejoiced and they immediately offered sacrifice to God. But as I mentioned before, their joy quickly turned to sorrow. Some, some of the men looked into the ark and were immediately struck down. Now, I don't know if they were regarding the ark as some sort of a victory trophy and they were taking selfies. <laughs> or if they wanted to look into the ark to see if the contents of the ark were still there. Or if they were just curious But whatever the reason was, they didn't have a healthy sense of the fear of God, and so judgment came. When we're confronted with the holiness of God, there are many conflicting reactions. One of the initial reactions is revulsion, a desire to get away from God. When the Hebrews were in the wilderness, they were afraid of God. And they wanted to stay far from him. In fact, they asked Moses to be the one to speak to him. And they said, Moses, just tell us what God says, but we want to keep him at a distance. The Philistines wanted to send away the presence of God. The people of Beth Shemesh wanted to get rid of the ark. When Jesus delivered the man who was called the demoniac and sent the demons into the pigs who ran down the cliff and drowned in the ocean, The men of that region came to Jesus and they begged him to leave. Please, Lord, leave. Your presence scares us. So revulsion is the first reaction when we encounter the holiness of God. Another reaction when confronted with the holiness of God is just this feeling of unworthiness. What did Adam and Eve do when they realized they had sinned and they were unworthy? They hid from the presence of God. Isaiah was undone when he had seen a vision of the glory of God filling the temple. And he said this in Isaiah 6, Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. When Peter became aware of who Jesus really was, he said this in Luke 5, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. A third reaction when confronted with the holiness of God is the element of attraction. This is the one that we want to embrace. Moses wanted to see the glory of God, so God let all of his goodness pass before him. John beheld the glory of God in the book of Revelation when the Bible says that John fell at his feet as one who is dead. But John did not retreat. He did not ask God to leave, but he embraced His awesome majesty. Because of Christ's finished work on the cross, the barrier that separates us from a holy God has been removed. That is the beauty of the gospel of Christ. We can stand in the presence of God, holy and blameless. And although we should have a deep sense of awe and a a deep respect for who God is, we don't have to be afraid of Him. We don't have to send Him away. We don't have to dwell on our own unworthiness. Rather, we can rejoice that Jesus has made a way for us to be in the presence of God. 
Ephesians 2.13 says it very well. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Praise God. After God's judgment in Beth Shemesh, where 70 men were struck down, the ark was kept at the house of Abinadab, where it remained for 20 years. Now, this next part is not part of our text today, but after David was installed as king of Israel, he wanted to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. He recognized that the ark was like the throne of God's presence, and he also wanted to establish God's presence as king over himself and over the people of God at that point. He wanted to restore the presence of God, the ark, to the center of worship and to a place of prominence in the nation. And so David planned this elaborate celebration to bring the ark back. He constructed a special tabernacle, which is going to be a resting place for the ark, He composed a special song that he taught the Levites to sing, and he had an entire worship team assembled to worship God with all of their might. And if that wasn't enough, he had 30,000 of his soldiers to accompany this great procession. He wanted this to be something that the nation would not only participate in, but they would remember and talk about for the rest of their lives. So, he planned this big event He gave the order to load up the ark and have it shipped to Jerusalem. It turns out you just don't ship God. (laughs) Instead of transporting the ark the way he should have, the way it was prescribed by the law, David transported the ark just the way the Philistines did, in a cart pulled by cows. In other words, he did things the world's way instead of God's way. And when the procession started out, the Scripture says that the oxen stumbled. And when the oxen stumbled, this man named Uzzah reached his hand out to steady the ark, and he was immediately struck dead. 2 Samuel 6-7 says it this way, The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there right beside the ark of God. Now, the very next verse in that passage says that David was angry with God and he was afraid of him. He probably felt betrayed by God. He felt humiliated. He felt rejected. He was deeply frustrated that such a great event was thwarted. I mean, there was so much planning. It was going to be such a glorious celebration, but God reigned on our party. You can bet that in the next days and weeks, David did a lot of soul-searching probably spent a lot of time by himself. He came to appreciate in a deeper way that God is unapproachable. God is majestic and holy. He really is the Lord of glory. David also looked into the Word of God that hadn't been taught for years, and he learned the proper way to carry the Ark of the Covenant. So after this tragedy with Uzzah, The ark stayed at a house nearby. It was Obed-Edom's house. And the Bible says that he and his entire household were blessed by God. When David saw this, three months later, he again tried to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. But this time, according to the word of God, this time in the fear of the Lord. Here is how it's described in 2 Samuel 6. Now David was told, 
The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. David, while wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of the trumpets. So David did it the right way this time. Instead of the ark being carted on the cart with two cows pulling it, there were priests carrying the ark on poles. You notice the ark was being transported in a much different way, the way God had prescribed. He had read the Word of God, and the Word of God instructed him on the proper way to do it. And then, notice how careful they were being. Can you imagine? I've got the pole on my shoulder. I'm one of the Levites. And I went six steps. One, two, three, four, five, six. And I look around. Nobody's dead. <laughs> Praise God. Let's put the ark down and sacrifice a bull and praise God and worship Him. They were being very careful this time. And so the celebration that David wanted to have in the first place, they had this time. So what can we learn from all of this? God is holy. Can you say that with me? God is holy. Tom often says that there are two things that we continually underestimate. The first is the depth of our own sinfulness. And the second is the extent of God's holiness. When I first read about this incident with Uzzah and about how God judged Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts when they told this little white lie about the land that they donated to the church, it seemed like God was being mean and unfair. I mean, David had good intentions when he, when he desired to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. Uzzah had good intentions when he reached his hand out to steady the ark to keep it from falling. Ananias and Sapphira were in the process of giving a substantial donation to the church, which they didn't have to do. God, what do you have against these good people? Why are you being so harsh? Why are you being so mean and unfair? Some commentators offer a little historical perspective by saying that since this was the beginning of a new form of government under human kings, God needed to give a shocking reminder, no pun intended, about who the Lord was. In Ananias and Sapphira's case, it was the beginning of the church, and they concluded that this tragic event laid a foundation for a healthy sense of the fear of God. While all of that may be true, I think there's a more personal lesson for us. David and Uzzah may have been sincere, but good intentions and ignorance are no excuse before a holy God. We have made a God out of good intentions and sincerity. We think as long as we're sincere, as long as we have good intentions, we're good to go, right? We've got to pass. There are two phrases that we often use to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. The first one is this, well, no one's perfect. Are you kidding me? Really? Like we need to be told that? <laughs> and the other one is, well, God knows my heart. Isn't that sweet? God knows my heart. Well, yeah, God does know our hearts, but He wants us to know His. 
He wants us to know Him as He is, not as we think He is, not as we want Him to be. He wants to know Him as He is. If we want to truly honor God, then we have to be committed to doing the right things in the right way. It matters to God, so it should matter to us as well. I think one of the greatest sins in the church today is not seeing God as holy, the fear of the Lord. I'm going to say that again. I think one of the greatest sins in the church in America today is not seeing God as holy. I think part of the confusion about God and about who He is comes about from the paradoxic nature of our relationship with Him. I mean, Jesus revealed God as a loving Father, Abba, who wanted to have a relationship with His children. It's a very tender picture. Jesus Himself referred to us as His friends, another tender picture of our relationship with God. And while that's absolutely true, we have to remember that with the roar of His voice, God could level a mountain. Remember the quote about Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia. When Susan asked about Aslan, she said, Is he safe? And Mr. Beaver answered, Of course he ain't safe, but he's good. God does consider us his friends. But it's not the casual friendship that we can be very cavalier about. He's not one of my buds, or as we would say in Italian, one of my paisans, you know? who I can kind of keep in my back pocket and pull out anytime I want to and use as my personal assistant anytime I want. Romans 11.22 says this, Consider, therefore, the kindness and the sternness of God. Another translation says, Behold the goodness and the severity of God. You guys, God really, really is good. There is a depth to the quality of His goodness that we can't even begin to understand. He is so, so good. But God is also severe. He's an awesome God who is to be deeply respected and honored. The fire of His presence is so powerful that if we were to stand in front of Him right now in our current state without being protected, we would not survive. We cannot be careless about God. We cannot take God for granted. We cannot presume upon His grace and goodness. The 70 men who perished were careless because they didn't value the presence of God. Uzzah may very well have taken the presence of God for granted. Uzzah was actually one of the sons of Abinadab, where the ark stayed for 20 years after it was returned by the Philistines. Uzzah was used to having the ark around. It was around for 20 years, probably most of his life. Now, we don't know this for sure, but it's quite possible that he, that he developed this kind of casual attitude towards the ark that caused him to act unwisely. David was presumptuous and overconfident. Presumption is assuming that God will act in a certain way based on our past experience or our idea of what God should do. Have you ever presumed upon the grace of God. I know I have, unfortunately. There have been several times when I went ahead and I did something that I knew God didn't want me to do, and I actually reasoned ahead of time that God would forgive me. Boy, that's dangerous. That's where we get the phrase, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than it is to get permission. 
If we want revival in our hearts, you guys, and we want to see revival in the church, we have to be very careful how we handle the presence of God. We need to have a continual awareness of the fact that God is holy. We've all heard this religious cliche, God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. We say this because we enjoy the blessings of God and because it makes us feel good. But think about the goodness of God. When God revealed his goodness to Moses, he hid Moses in a cleft of a rock. Why? Because if he hadn't, Moses wouldn't have survived. Well, how could seeing God's goodness cause Moses to die? Because his goodness and his holiness are one and the same. Maybe we should start a new phrase that goes like this. God is holy all the time. All the time, God is holy. For some reason, that doesn't seem quite as comforting, does it? <laughs> 1 Peter 1.16 says this, But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. We need to pray that God helps us to develop a holy respect for who he is and for what he says. There should be a growing desire in us, a growing desire to do his will and to obey his word, to do things the right way, to do the right things, rather, in the right way. There should be a sense of carefulness that allows us to approach God with humility and with reverence. There should be a quickness in our lives to repent the moment we become aware of something that displeases God. The worship team can come up, and as they come up, I have just a, a few summary statements. I have some good news and some bad news. The bad news first. We know that God desires wholeheartedness, but we also know that our hearts are prone to wander, don't we? We know that God is sovereign, and in spite of that, we're often tempted to live in fear. We know that God is holy, and yet many times our attitudes and our words and our actions sometimes demonstrate a lack of the fear of God. But here's the good news, and it really is good news. We have a Savior who has provided a rich salvation. Jesus has become our righteousness, and therefore He has made provision for the weakness of our flesh. As the scripture says, God is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the one who has promised to complete the good work that he's begun. He is the one who has promised to work in us both to will and to act according to his good pleasure. God is the author of our salvation. He understands our weakness. He's not put off by it. He's not disappointed. He's not surprised. He's not here to scold or condemn. He loves us. He's for us and He's willing to help us in our weaknesses. All God is looking for, you guys, is a humble and a willing heart. All He's looking for is someone who's teachable, someone who quickly walks in the gift of repentance. He's looking for someone who will really value His presence. Dear God, please let us be that people. Amen. As we worship, as the worship team plays this next song, I'd like to take us just 
some prayerful time to consider these things before the Lord, and then afterwards I'll come up and close us in prayer. we have is our lives to offer back to you. Lord, we know you spilled your precious blood for us. Let us spill our lives out for you, Lord. Lord, you know the weakness of our own flesh, but you also know the desires in our hearts. We're so grateful, Lord, that we have a Savior We needed a Savior, and we got one in you. So, Lord, thank you for saving us to the uttermost. Thank you for being the author and the perfecter of our faith. Lord, do for us what we can't do for ourselves. All we can say, Lord, is we're here. We offer our lives to you as a living sacrifice. Lord, teach us how to be wholehearted. Teach us how to walk in confidence knowing that you are the sovereign God. We do not need to walk in fear. And thank you for teaching us about your holiness. Help us to walk in the fear of the Lord. Lord, we know that you are saying these things to us in these days because you are causing revival to happen in our hearts and you are preparing us for revival in this church and in this region. So, Lord, we say continue to have your way in our lives. Do the work that you long to do. Do the work that we can't do for ourselves. We pour our lives out to you, Lord, as that alabaster jar. Receive the the fragrance, the beauty of a life poured out, Lord, unto you. Thank you, Lord. We dedicate our lives anew to you, Lord. Have your work in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Lord.